I had my car in the shop this week for a minor repair, and there was a monitor playing television, but I wasn't paying attention. In fact, I was sitting right under the monitor. I had my workout, actually working on this talk. But uh, you know how it is when you've got a television in the background, every once in a while something will be said and it sort of piques your attention or gets your attention. And that's what happened to me because uh, there was a commercial coming up for a new television show. I guess it's coming out pretty soon. And I think the title of the show is called Living Biblically. And so when I heard that, I thought, well, I got to listen to this, you know, Living Biblically, because we're talking about the Jesus life. Um, and, but the first time, when I found out what the show was about, it's about a guy, I guess, who was going through some difficulty in his life, and he decided he was going to live just perfectly biblically. Uh, and the first thought that crossed my mind was uh, having Hollywood or television writers write about having to live, how to live biblically would be a lot like having Harvey Weinstein talk about marriage counseling. So, uh, and I was right, because when I started unpacking the show, it was just silly turns out none of the writers, as far as I know, is a person of faith. They say, oh, we respect people of faith, but really it's just sort of setting up a straw man and poking its eye because the, the guy gets into stuff like in the Old Testament about not wearing clothing of mixed fabrics and all that silly stuff, which really, it wasn't silly at the time. It was just God giving instructions to the Jewish people that had symbolism about who they were and why they should observe those laws because it had to do with who they were. But the thing about it that got me was I don't see anything about truly living biblically. And the thing about it is, here's what I want you to know. When it comes to living biblically, if you're living the Jesus life, which is what we're going to be talking about, there is really one command. And I love that because being ADD, if, like if you tell me how to get to a place and there are more than three turns, I'll get lost. So when I read the Bible and I feel like there's so many commands that I just can't possibly keep up with them. It does overwhelm me some. But when I go into the book of 1 John, which is what we're studying right now, I discovered that really there is only one command that you have to fulfill to live the Jesus life. And it is so huge that I'm actually going to be on it at least two weeks, maybe three weeks, because there's just so much in the book of 1 John on this one one particular topic or this one command in which God sort of sums up all of his other instructions in that one command. Now, here's the thing. You say, Mark, I don't know if I want to do this or not. Well, just hear me on this. There are five things that you'll get if you live out this wonderful trait that God wants you to have. The first thing is you will please God. Now, I grew up in a religious tradition, and every once in a while, I almost got the feeling that nobody could ever please God. And that, I'm not faulting anyone who spoke into my life. It's just I walked away with that impression that there's so many things that I need to do, and I fell in so many years. I just sort of have the idea that God can't be pleased. But here's the deal. If you do this one thing, you may fail at some of the things that you want to achieve, but you, you will know that you have pleased God because the Bible tells us this pleases God. The second thing is that you will know you are living the Jesus life. If you want to know what the Jesus life is and you do this one thing, then you're going to know that you are living the Jesus life. Number three, you'll be happy. Nothing will make you happy like doing what we're going to talk about. Number four, you will have the greatest relationships of anybody you know. No one will have greater relationships than yours if you will do this one thing. And fifth, and this is important to me, for all of us who deal with emotional disorder, you will place yourself in a position where you can have the best possible emotional health. So let me go over those five things again. Number one, you'll please God. Number two, you'll know you're living the Jesus life. Number three, you'll be happy. Number four, you'll have the best relationships of anybody you know. And number Number five, you will put yourself in a place where you can have the best emotional health possible. So with that in mind, what is the one thing, what is the one command that is the Jesus life? Let me take you now to 1 John chapter 2. 
I hope you're getting acquainted with this book. Maybe I hope you're reading it during the week so that you can kind of get boned up on what we're going to talk about when we get in here. But I want to share with you this command, starting in chapter 2 in the seventh verse. Dear friends, John writes, I am not writing a new commandment for you. Rather, it's an old one. You've had this from the very beginning. This old commandment, ready? Here we go. To love one another. To love one another is the same message you've heard before, yet it is also new. Now, look at this next part, because I've shared with you that the title of our series is The Jesus Life. I want you to see it in print. Jesus lived the truth of this commandment. So we're, we're saying, what is the Jesus life? Well, all you have to do is go back to the Bible and say, how did Jesus live? And John says, Jesus lived this out. It wasn't something that he just taught. You know, We have a rash of teachers who teach the Bible about what other people should do, and then we find out they have scandals in their life. So clearly they taught it but didn't live it. But not Jesus. Jesus lived the truth of this commandment. And now here's the thing. You remember when John said a moment ago, it's old but it's new? What he's saying is, Jesus lived this. It's as old as Jesus. But he said, now you're living it. It's as new as you when you get in your car to drive out of the parking lot today and meet other people. It's as old as Jesus. It is as new as you. And now I love this because you and I live in a dark world. How many of you like watch what's going on in the world and you think, oh, this world is getting darker and darker and darker? No, look at this. For the darkness is disappearing and the true light is already shining. As someone said, I read the back of the book and we win. So what God is saying is, look, his, his, his program, his empire is moving on, and ultimately it will move on to a bright day. John is saying, come get on the bandwagon. Come join it. Don't get trapped in this darkness, which is already fading away. Jump on the bandwagon of light and live out your life in love. Now, somebody might say, well, Mark, I still have a problem with what you said at the beginning of this message, because... I don't know that love sums up everything. <laughs> There's a lot of stuff, and I don't, I don't see how love covers that. Well, I'm not the expert. How do you feel about Jesus? I want you to see what Jesus said. This is in Matthew 22. You don't have to turn there, but in Matthew 22, a lawyer approached Jesus, and he was trying to trap him. And he asked Jesus this, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Well, Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now look at these next words. All, all, okay, see that word? A-L-L. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Jesus just told us everything in the Bible that we're instructed to do hangs on the commandment to love God and to love each other. So I'm not making this stuff up. I've I'm, I'm got scriptural backing for this. If you want to live the Jesus life, there is one thing you have to do, and that is love people and love God. Well, I've got to be honest about this. I'll tell you where I got the title for this talk. I actually got it from reading a guy's tattoos in a Southern California airport. <laughs> you know, when somebody's got a lot of tattoos, you can read all about them. Have you ever noticed that? I mean, just sort of, when, you, when a person is covered with tattoos, it's sort of like they're telling everybody their life story. And, and there's sometimes when I look at tattoos and they're kind of ugly and mean, but this guy had the most optimistic, upbeat, spiritual tattoos. I, I just got blessed reading his story. I'm serious. I mean, I was sitting across from in a gate in, in Palm Springs and I looked over at him and around his neck, he had tattooed in big letters, truly blessed. I thought, man, if you're going to tattoo something, try that. That's good. Truly blessed. 
And he had other spiritual messages and scripture verses, but on his forearm, he had the words that I thought, I love that. I'm going to make this the title of the message, True Love. I want to talk to you, in fact, this is True Love Part 1. Next week, I'll talk to you about True Love Part 2. But I want to talk to you about true love. Now, here's the deal. Whenever I say that following God is loving, the problem that we have with that is the definition of love that we've gotten from our culture. I want to show you a couple of verses in 1 John that will help us get going here. In chapter 3, first, this is not John 3.16, it's 1 John 3.16. The Bible says we know what real love is. Today, there was a lot of discussion about fake news. I don't know anything about that. That's over my head. But John said, I want to talk about what real love is. So if there's real love, there has to be fake love. Now, it must have been really important to John because he came back to it. Now in chapter 4, look at this. This is real love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to pay the price for our sins. So two times in the book, John has said, I want to talk to you about real love. Well, okay, if we need to know what real love is, let's start by seeing if we can unpack what's not real love and what is real love. In the Greek language in which the New Testament was written, there were four words that were translated into our English word love. The first word is the word eros, E-R-O-S. Eros is sexual love or romantic love. Now, we know that. It's important. It is interesting that that word is never used in the Bible. Anytime God is talking about love, it's never eros. Now, the issue with that, and this is going to be our challenge in this series, especially this part of the series, is almost every usage of the word love in our language is eros. When you listen to love in songs, you know, it's, it's eros. When you hear the word love used in movies or in literature, it's pretty well eros. In fact, I had to do some shopping for Mary Alice at Dillon's, and I was walking through the checkout lane, and I was looking at the magazines that are just omnipresent. They've been there all my lifetime. You know that? Sometimes I think they're the same ones. Because it's about, you know, people that are celebrities and they've fallen in love now and they found their true love, although they've had about 20 loves before. But this is true love. And then you come back three months later and they're breaking up and this person's getting back with their old love. Well, the deal is this. Romantic love is what it is. I mean, it is something that hopefully is the threshold to a really meaningful relationship. But as we see in our culture today, it can come and it can go. Well, and here's the thing. In in our culture today, and we'll talk about this a little bit next week, there are people that hear what God has to say about sexuality, and they sort of like, well, why can't I love who I want to love? Well, you can love who you want to love if you look at it from the biblical perspective. You just can't have sex with who you want to have sex with, which is usually what that question means. The second kind of love, or the second word for love in the Greek language, is the word storgos. And it means a comfortable feeling of affection. Storgos is what makes me smile when my puppy jumps up on me. Storgos is what makes me hold the door open for a stranger I've never met before. Storgos is what makes me empathetic when I'm on K96 and I see someone whose car is broken down. It is what the Bible calls natural affection. Now, the reason why this should be important to you and me, especially in a week like this week, is the Bible tells us, in fact, the only time it uses the word storgos, it uses it with an A in front, which means the negative of it, or not natural affection. Two times it uses that. Look at this text. This is in the book of 2 Timothy. But know this, in the last days, which I believe we're living in today, in the last days, grievous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of self with 
astorgos, without natural affection. You want to know what happened in Parkland this week and what's happening throughout our culture? And it's a lot more, it's a lot more pervasive than we want to admit. We have a generation of people, unfortunately, who don't have natural affection. They're missing that component. And so the Bible tells us that's the second kind of love. But our love that the Bible is going to talk to us about is beyond romance and sex, and it's beyond natural affection. The third word is the word phileo, which means friendship. Friendship is a love that's very strong between two people. But in all of these kinds of love, it is clear from, from history and from our own experience that these loves, romantic, natural friendship, they come and they go. There is a fourth word for love that became exclusive in the Christian community, and it is the word that is almost always used in the Bible when the Bible talks about love, and it is the Greek word A-G-A-P-E, agape. This love, and it's so hard to define, and that's what we're going to work on for the rest of this talk today, is just defining it. This love is different from the others. Let me see if I can explain when you think about romantic love, when you think about natural love, when you think about friendship, it's like you're dipping out of a reservoir. It's like you have a container that contains your capacity for romance and sex, a, a container that has a, has a capacity for natural affection and friendship. And so when you, when you dip out that love, you are, you are reducing your capacity. You know, you can only be romantic with so many people, hopefully, ultimately, one person. You, you, can, you can only be naturally affectionate toward a small group of people because you're just not going to meet most people. <clears throat> and friendship, most of us know if you have five friends, you're truly blessed. You can't be friends with everyone. But the thing about God's love that makes it different from the kinds of love, even good, that the world enjoys is that it's not like a reservoir that you dip out. It's like a river that flows. And when this river flows from God through you, you have no limit to the love that you can have for people. So do we, do we get that if nothing else? The other loves are like reservoirs, but this love is like a river. Now, there is a chapter in the Bible that we're going to spend the rest of our time in. It's not in 1 John, but there is a chapter in the Bible that defines this agape love or real love or true love. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at the different things. I think this chapter tells us 12 things about love, and I think they're in your notes today. And when we get through, you're going to know from God's perspective what the Jesus life is and what the kind of love is that if you have, number one, you're going to please God. Number two, you'll live the Jesus life. Number three, you'll be happy. Number four, you'll have the best possible relationships. And number five, you'll put yourself in a place where you can have the best emotional health. Now, we're not going to go there in text, but in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul starts off the chapter by saying three things. <clears throat> by the way, he's talking to a church, and it's not like New Spring, because we get along, we love each other, and we're excited about the vision. But this is a church that was fighting. And believe it or not, they were actually fighting over who was the most gifted. And this fighting over who was the most gifted had like created divisions within the church. And there were people that said, well, we're good at this, and that's the most important thing. And this other group was saying, no, we're good at this, and that's the most important thing. And the third group was like, well, we're, we're about this, and it's the most important thing. <clears throat> and it was into that quagmire that Paul wrote that the most important thing was love. And he makes three statements. And the first statement is, he said, if I could speak with all the languages of the earth, and I could be the greatest speaker in the world, but if I don't have love, he said, I'm nothing. 
And then he went to the second gift. He said, you know, if I was brilliant and I could understand all the mysteries and I knew everything that God was up to, and if I had the kind of faith that I could move mountains, but if I didn't have love, I would be a zero. And then finally he said, if I gave away everything I had and even gave my body to be burned, but if I didn't have love, I'm a zero. What's he saying? This is important for us because in our culture today, we really emphasize personal giftedness. Paul is saying, I can be the most gifted person in the world, but giftedness minus love equals nothing. I can be the most gifted, charismatic person in the world, but if I don't have love, it's nothing. Now, I'll tell you why it's beautiful to me, because I'm not very gifted and I'm not very smart, and sometimes I struggle to be as generous as I should be, but the good news is I can have love. So with that in mind, let's get on our horse and ride, because we're going to look at 12 things. You see, forgive me for breaking a sentence, agape love is hard to define, and I don't know exactly how to define it. I mean, to me, if I were to give you a thumbnail definition, I would say it is an attitude of value. It's not an emotion. An attitude of values, and that's maybe not a good definition, but as I see it, it goes like this. You are valuable. Even if I don't know you, you're valuable. And I'm going to treat you with huge value because you are valuable. Valuable to God, valuable to yourself. And because God loves you, I love you, you're valuable to me. Now, with that in mind, let's jump in. Let's look at the 12 things, okay? Here we go. Here is agape love, and we're going to learn what it does, what it doesn't do, what it is, and what it isn't. Number one, look at this. Love is patient. Love is patient. Now, how many of us, you need to raise your hand, please, but how many of you struggle with patience? How many of you, yeah, right. How many of you know that you can be having a perfectly good day until you get on Kellogg? <clears throat> <clears throat> Well, we all struggle with that kind of patience. That's important. It's for another sermon. But this is targeted. This is patience with people. Patience with people. Oh, I don't know about you, but that's the toughest kind of patience I had to deal with. Because, in fact, there is another word that sometimes this gets translated as, and that is long-suffering. Oh, those are two strange words to put together, right? Suffering and long. You, who, I started to ask you who comes to mind, but I was afraid some of you ladies would do this. So I, <clears throat> I won't do that. Or maybe your kids. Patience with people. Well, that's a challenge, isn't it? Because oftentimes people get under our skin and we want to write them off. But patience with people means, you know what? I am going to be who I am and give you time to grow. Every parent knows about this. When I think about patience with people, I think about a story I read years ago about a man who was pushing his son in a stroller through a mall. And I mean, the kid was just going nuts. He was screaming, I mean, at the top of his lungs. And the man was just very quietly saying, be calm, Michael. Be calm. Be quiet. Michael, please calm down. Michael, don't lose it. Don't lose it. Just, Michael, just, 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 don't, just don't, don't go over the top. Michael, just, just let it go. Let it go, Michael. And a lady walked up to him and she said, sir, I'm so impressed with you. For you to have that kind of patience with little Michael there. He said, lady, I'm Michael. <laughs> love, <clears throat> love means you keep on being you while you give someone time to grow. You know what? This would revolutionize some marriages. This would revolutionize some parent-child relationships. Patience says, I love you, and because I love you, I know you're not perfect. 
And I know you're going to have problems and issues, but I'm going to give you room to grow. Let's go to number two. Love is kind. Now, let me just be honest with you, because I want to grow. If you back me into a corner and you said, Mark, what do you want in your life more than anything else in your spiritual development? I would tell you, hands down, I want to, I want to grow in love. Some of these 12 things are not real easy, but I'm going to give you the easiest one. This is the slowest pitch of all, okay? Love is kind. Let me challenge you tomorrow. Because, forgive, forgive me for breaking a sense, but I just want to challenge you to do something. Most of the time, we're kind because we feel motivated to be kind. We see, one, see someone, the, issue, the problems that they're in, or they look pleasant to us, or they look like somebody that we would like, or they kind of are like us. And so we, because we feel motivated, then we tend to be kind. But I want to challenge you to do something. I want you to get up in the morning and think about this. Think about saying to yourself, I am going to intentionally be kind to everyone I meet. I'm going to become a kindness dispenser. That is who I'm going to be. I'm going to be kind to everybody. You say, well, Mark, there are people I don't want to be kind to. Yeah, okay, be kind to them. Be kind. See, kindness, it doesn't require a whole lot. And you know the thing I love about kindness is kindness tends to do more for me than the person that I'm kind to. Check this out. See if it's possible to be kind and unhappy at the same time. It's really hard. Because kindness is like an emotional reset button. If I'm having a bad day, I discover that when I'm kind to somebody else, it just sort of like allows me to breathe again. Kindness will do that. Okay, let's move on because there's so much to talk about here. Number three, love is not jealous. Now the word jealousy there really is envious. Envious means we're unhappy because somebody else is blessed, or they don't seem to be punished for what they've done. And so consequently, it is a decision to be unhappy because someone else is either blessed or not punished, or at least it doesn't seem like they're being punished. How many of you, and again, you don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you have discovered that envy is a wasted emotion? Because oftentimes in our envy, we're unhappy, and that person doesn't even know we're unhappy. They're sailing right on. Hey, here's the thing. My dad taught me this. My dad taught me many wonderful things. But one of the things that my dad taught me that I treasure very much is dad taught me to be happy when other people are blessed. He said, if someone gets a, you know, he said, if your car is broken down and somebody else gets a new car, be happy for that person. He said, if you're having a hard time making your rent and somebody is given a new house, be happy for that person. You know, dad taught me if I can be happy when others are blessed, I'll always be happy. And so the Bible tells us love is, you know, love is happy when you get something that person does not get. And it's being happy when that person gets something that you don't get. All right, let's move on. Number four, love doesn't trash talk and it's not arrogant. Now, these are two things here that I want you to focus on. Trash talking is boasting. Trash talking is saying, hey, I'm, I'm the best. I got more. I did more than anybody else. Listen, guys, what love says when it's successful and, and thankfully all of us will be, love remembers that our blessing comes from God. It is God who has given us the ability to be successful. So it gives God glory and it gives other people credit. When you're successful, always remember you didn't get there by yourself. It's like someone said about the turtle sitting on top of the fence post. When you see that, you know he didn't get there by himself. And so consequently, it's not trash talking. Tra not trash talking. And then it's not arrogant. 
<laughs> I love the Greek word for arrogant here. It means to be puffed up. It means to have a feeling of superiority. You ever see anybody like that? They just sort of carry themselves with this puffed up feeling of superiority. You almost wonder what would happen if somebody just touched them with a pen. <laughs> Guys, let me tell you something. I have met a few great people in my life. The great is overused. But I'm talking about people that really changed the world. Because of my opportunities and privilege in life, I've had the opportunity to meet some great people. I'm talking about the people that would be on the cover of magazines in the airport. I'm talking about leaders who changed the world. You know what I've discovered? I have not met one great person yet who was arrogant. In fact, the amazing thing about the greatest people I've met is they are always interested in you. <laughs> I don't have time to tell the story, but I think the greatest person in my life that I ever met I'm a pastor, so I think this man was the greatest pastor of the 20th century. Um, I, I grew up with Dallas Cowboys, and we called him America's team. I always called this guy America's pastor because I always thought he was the greatest pastor I, I ever knew. I never thought I'd have any chance of meeting him. But through a strange set of circumstances back in 1996, I had a chance. He, he invited me out to where he pastored. And again, one the, maybe perhaps the highest profile church in America. And he invited me out to spend time with him. Now, I've got to tell you something. I didn't sleep the night before because I wonder what in the world am I going to tell Adrian Rogers? I mean, this guy is like my hero. I mean, you know, this is a guy, if I had to have posters up in my room of this guy, you know, I mean, he's, I thought he was great. What am I going to say to him? I was terrified. I was nervous. Couldn't sleep the night before. I will never forget, I walked into his campus. He had a meeting with his staff. I think they had like 250 staff members. And he was conducting a meeting. He had left instructions. And I'm a nobody. You know, at this time, our church was really small. It was about 500 people. He had left instructions that when I got on campus, he was to be interrupted immediately. He would stop his talk before his staff and come out and meet with me. I'll never forget when we sat down in the car together to drive. And, 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 and I was wondering, what, what, what am I going to say when I'm in a situation? I mean, what do you say to your hero that you feel like is the greatest at what you do? I'll never forget when we got in the car, he said, well, Mark, tell me about yourself. And that began a friendship that lasted until his death in 2005. Every great person I met didn't seem to know it. You know, someone has said the difference between greatness and smallness is smallness goes into a room and says, I'm here. And greatness goes into a room and says, there you are. I've been looking for you. <laughs> we live in a world that seems to feel like that the more you can trash talk and the more you can puff yourself up, the greater you are. What a joke. What a tragic joke. Because love isn't boastful or it doesn't trash talk. It's interesting. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, it says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If you're a loving person, it's not always, how can I be the biggest person in the room? It's how can I make you better? How can I add value to your life? Okay, let's roll on. Number five, love isn't rude. <laughs> I've met a few people, especially ladies would tell me something like this. They'd say, well, I know my husband is rude. But you just have to understand, he's such a strong personality. No, 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 no. Rudeness isn't strength. It's weakness trying to sound strong. 
Here's the thing. If any, you ever meet anybody who's rude, really all that person is, is like screaming out, I'm insecure, I'm insecure, and the rudeness is a megaphone that allows everybody to see it. Isn't it true? Because you're all healthy people. Isn't it true that you're embarrassed by rudeness? You can be standing 10 people back in line from somebody who's being rude up at the front of the line. You don't know that person. You don't know the person who is serving them, but instantly you just have this cringing. It's almost like fingernails on chalkboard. Why? Because you're healthy. Love isn't rude. Well, let's go to the next one because it's real similar. Number six says love doesn't shove. A shoving person is, I'm going to get my way. This is what verse 5 says. It does not demand its own way. Well, see, as we're going to see throughout this, love is the opposite of selfishness. And selfishness says, I'm going to get my way. Now, there are two ways that people get their own way. One is by being overbearing and shoving. The other is by being manipulative. But it's shoving just the same. Could I talk to anybody here today? You know, we almost have a concept that if you're a strong man or a strong woman, you get your own way. And that's sort of like the measurement of being strong. Lovingly, could I tell you something? If you have to have your own way, your life is going to be a lonely trip. Because you see, and I just hope, hope I'm not the first person to tell you this, other people don't wake up in the morning and say, how can I live out her destiny? Other people don't get up in the morning and say, how can I just do, how can I do, how can I spend my whole life invested in doing what he wants to do? <laughs> people just aren't like that. And so if you have to have your own way, I got to tell you, it's going to be a lonely trip and a miserable trip, and you're not going to like the destination. Number seven, love isn't irritable. Ooh, should we just stop here for a few moments? I mean, there are a few of you out there saying, preach it, pastor, preach it. Uh, Let's talk. I mean, heads up for a moment. I, I know we're just workshopping here today, and this is not really a sermon, but I really want you to engage here. Um, there is a difference between being irritated and being irritable. Because if I ask you this morning, how many of you are irritated from time to time, unless you're a ball-faced liar, we're going to all raise our hands, right? Because we all get irritated. But irritable is a culture. It is a personal culture in which a person, and I don't know that they ever unpack this, but basically they are saying several things to themselves. I am all about me. Consequently, I am disappointed with life. Therefore, I am angry, and it's got to be somebody's fault, and how about you? I'm all about me. That means I'm always disappointed. And because I'm disappointed, I'm unhappy, and it's got to be somebody's fault. Therefore, it's your fault. So this is an unhappy, angry person walking around like a fuse, waiting for somebody to just strike a match and irritate them. They, they, wake, they wake up in the morning looking for somebody to, to be the reason why they're unhappy. And guys, I don't want to get on the soapbox here today, but we're living in a culture today that is irritable. I mean, media figures, public figures are always demanding apologies, demanding apologies because I've been wounded to the point of despair. No, you just have victim mentality. And the problem is irritable, irritable. It's like the old story of the guy who just woke up in the morning and he was miserable, mad at his wife about everything. He snapped at her. Everything she did was wrong. Every, every quality, every trait she had was wrong. He was upset about this and upset about that. And finally, she just got tired of hearing him say those kinds of things. She said, well, look, let me, just tell me what you want for breakfast and maybe I can get that right. 
He said, I want you to poach an egg and scramble an egg. Bring me one poached and one scrambled. She thought, well, okay. So she brought him out a poached egg and a scrambled egg. He looked at it and he glared at her. She said, what did I do wrong now? He said, you scrambled the wrong one. <laughs> we got a whole culture of people like that today. Self. I'm unhappy because the rest of the world won't live for me. And because of that, I'm angry. And it's got to be somebody's fault. And you made me mad, so it's your fault. Mm, love's not irritable. A love can get irritated sometimes. But it's not walking around looking for a reason to be unhappy. See, love chooses to be happy. Love chooses to be pleased. Love is long-suffering. Remember, it gives people room to grow and chance to change. Okay, got to rush on here. This is number eight. Love doesn't keep score. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 13, 5, it keeps no record of being wrong. Now, I had to think a lot about this before I got into this because the thing of it is, I'm like, okay, what is the difference between forgiving somebody and not keeping record of all the wrongs that someone has done? Well, it made me think about that for a moment to the point where I recognize that oftentimes when we say we forgive, we really don't forgive. We're just looking to get past the argument. We just want things to settle down. But we don't want to lose the leverage that we have with the person having done wrong. So like the two guys who were tucking in a golf clubhouse getting dressed, he, the one guy said to the other, you know, every time I get into a fight with my wife, she gets historical. He said, don't you mean hysterical? He said, no, I mean historical. She brings up everything I've ever done. I don't know if you're beginning to feel this or not yet, but have you ever thought about the fact that everything we've talked about, you could take out the word love and put the word God in, or Jesus? Jesus is long-suffering. Jesus is kind. Jesus is not rude. Jesus does not demand his own way. See, here's the thing about love. You know, <laughs> from time to time when my kids were little, I would hear someone say, well, you know, Mark, he looks just like you, or Mark, he, he resembles you in some way. Now, a lot of times that wasn't good. But, you know, as a dad, that, that's true. I mean, you know, my kids are going to resemble me because they're my children. And they're going to pick up traits and habits. And do you realize that when you love, people look at you and say, oh, she's just like Jesus. He's like Jesus. It's an old saying. But I think all of us who are cross followers need to think about this, especially in relationship and attracting others to Christ. Someone has said, no one cares how much you know until they know how much you care. Why? Because that's what Jesus does. Okay, let's look at this real quickly. Love does not keep score. In looking at God in Isaiah chapter 43, verse 25, God said, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. Let's roll on. Number nine, love is happy when truth wins. This is in verse six. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Heads up because we really need this in 2018. What's the Bible talking about there? Every once in a while, wrong and right can get skewed by what we have a personal interest in. For instance, if you're a strong member of a particular party, or you're, you're like a strong progressive or a strong conservative, every once in a while, truth gets compromised. Because somehow one of those sides gets advantage, but it's not based on truth. But what happens, and I've watched this happen in the Christian community, where Christians can begin to defend the strangest stuff because they feel like that whatever they're hyping will advance Christianity. 
But a person who has love is always happy when truth wins out. Even if it doesn't advantage me. Even if I'm a progressive and the other side is conservative, if, if truth works for them, then I'm happy that whatever is true has worked. If I'm a conservative and truth works out for progressives, then I'm happy because it, the truth is truth. See, here's the thing. It is impossible to have love without truth. We'll talk about this next week. Love without truth is just sappy sentimentality. Let's move on. I got, I'm in two minutes over time. I got, what, two more, three more. Number 10, love bears up in all circumstances. It doesn't mean that love is happy with all circumstances. It just keeps loving. And guys, I need to make a real powerful disclaimer right now. I need to let you know that love does not mean that you don't have to sometimes draw boundaries. Because you can love someone who is so toxic that you have to draw a boundary to stay safe. But you can still love. You can still want the best for that person. You can still pray for that person. So if you need to draw a boundary line, you need to draw a boundary line and respect and observe those boundaries. Don't get the idea that God says in love that you're to put yourself in a place where you or your children are in danger. What it does mean is that love bears up under all circumstances. Number 11, love always believes the best. I'm out of time, but this is one of the ones I wish I'd left a lot more time for. It just simply means that when someone says something or does something, if there's a possible good motive, go ahead and describe that good motive to them. You say, well, Mark, what if I give, what if I ascribe a good motive and they have bad motives? Well, what have you lost? You know, here's the thing, and this is so important to me. Wish I had time to talk about this. I don't want the bad things other people do to change me. See, that's the thing. If you will always ascribe the best motive, you may be wrong about that person. Time may prove that they did have nefarious motives, but the good news is it won't change you, and you'll still be a loving person. Number 12, love doesn't quit. I think it's a great place to end today's talk, isn't it? Love doesn't quit. It just keeps on going. Well, who's the ultimate example of that? Jesus. You know what? There were a lot of times when Jesus could have quit. You think about this, he is God in skin, he is God in flesh, he is God coming into our world, doing for us what we cannot do, even to the point of dying for our sins. Hey, if I'm Jesus, there are a lot of places I want to quit, but I'll tell you there's one place I'd be most tempted to quit if I'm Jesus. Do you remember in the upper room that night when they were having Passover and Jesus took out the towel and the basin of water and washed the disciples' feet? It's because they were all feeling like they were the biggest and they weren't going to wash the others' feet, so Jesus washed all their feet. Now that's an incredible moment, but I think the moment, if I'm Jesus, for I would have said, I believe I've had enough. It's the moment when he came to Judas and he had Judas's foot in his hands. And he's thinking, here's a man I've loved and I've invested in and I've given every opportunity. And he went out and sold me like day old bread. If I'm Jesus, I think, you know what? I quit. You know, I did my father's will. I came here. I picked these 12 guys. They're all losers, but I invested in them. And this guy is going to sell me. I'm, 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 I'm sorry, guys. I'm going back to heaven. But he didn't because love doesn't quit. And less than 24 hours later, he laid down on a cross and he died for you. That is real love. And you can do it too. You'll have to be prepared to go against your own feelings, but you will change the world. And remember the five things? You will please God. 
you will live the Jesus life, you will be happy, you'll have the best possible relationships, and you'll put yourself in a place where you'll have the best emotional health possible. I am at five minutes over time, but can I just do one more thing, please? I want to give you a chance to invite this person into your life. Because you know what? His love doesn't stop. You say, well, Mark, you don't know what I've done. I don't know, but I know his love doesn't stop. And if you want to receive his love, if you want to become God's child, to be forgiven, if you want to have everlasting life, all those gifts rolled up into one, you get it when you put Jesus into your life. I'm gonna, the Bible says whoever calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. But I want to pray a prayer. And if you want to join me, you can. You ready? Here we go. Dear God, I know I'm a sinner, but I believe you love me anyway. I believe Jesus died for my sins. I believe he arose from the grave. Still have a lot of questions, but I trust you. I trust your love. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for making me your child. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, if you just prayed that prayer, I have a gift for you. It's a bag. It's got a Bible just like I preach from, a DVD, a book I wrote, and just some other stuff that will help you take your first steps. Free, won't cost you anything. Just go to any info center and say, I pray with Mark, and they'll give it to you. God bless. See you next weekend.